Welcome to the Inspiro Podcast, a podcast exploring personal growth, leadership, strategy, communication, and fulfillment. We are your hosts, Jason Luchtefeld and Bill Woodburn. I'm here as a dentist transitioning into a career to help facilitate individuals and their organizations towards a more fulfilling future. Hi there, I'm Bill Woodburn, and I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist in Austin, Texas. I'm fascinated by the way people come together to solve problems, whether that's couples or families, dental practices or organizations. We're going to be exploring a lot of topics and for us to be able to be free to do that, I have to let you know that this is not intended to be dental advice or counseling advice. Burnout. Burnout as the endpoint mm. of a mismatch between <laughs> our ability to combine our work and our play. Mm, mm -hmm. So we've talked about the importance of play before and the ability to enjoy what we're doing. And even as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, having the realization that we don't have to be the stuffy dentist that's in their suit and tie that is always serious and never laughing. And uh, this recently came up in a uh, core values exercise where a, a team came up with the, they settled on fun as one of their core values. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, that's going to be a tough one. Uh, what does that mean? How do you ensure that people are having fun every day? And they use the sound of laughter in the office as one of the indicators. I said, okay, that's, that's fantastic. And everybody's okay with that. Yeah, mostly. Sometimes it's a bit much. Okay. So you're going to have to really think about that now. And when is it too much? And what does that mean? And, and what else could be fun? And how do we determine we're having fun? And so with that said, I think we have this idea that we are supposed to be a certain way professional in the practice. And that often goes against the idea of having fun or playing. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, there is some direct connection there with that feeling of having to be professional with the burden of responsibilities that we've already talked about that lead us to some hopelessness, some helplessness and some burnout tendencies. So I'm coming to you as the expert again. Uh, how, how do we flip that script and say, I need to incorporate more fun in my day? Because we're talking about a couple of different reasons for laughter or fun. Yeah. One is fun because it's all trivial, like a slapstick comedy. Mm. And I wouldn't want to do a lot of like that. Right. But then there's this other fun because everything is flowing so well and everyone is where they need to be. You know, wow, that people will laugh when they get there, but it's a kind of satisfied laugh. It's a kind of laugh of recognition of, wow, we are doing it today. Isn't this cool? Not, isn't this trivial? It's, isn't this wonderful? It has that almost a little bit of awe in it. It's got that, that, that sense of, of flow or fit to it it also is um you know years ago 
they did a, uh, the people have always been trying in social sciences to do job satisfaction surveys. And so they did one and it had like 200 questions, you know, and so they gave it out and then they did a factor analysis and, and realized that, oh, no, only 100 questions are really necessary. Oh, that's great. 100 questions. They did that. Another factor analysis, factor analysis ended up being just one question. Do you get to do what you're good at? Right. Okay. Do you get to do what you're good at? Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, yeah. And you've probably had that. Your team's, I mean, it's like, it's that case. It's that thing that you're looking at and you go, I can really do this. I can do this really well. I get to do this for this patient. Not I have to do this for this patient. I get this opportunity to do this for this patient because this is going to be so cool when they see this or when this is working or when I check it later, you know, this is going to be really cool. And by the way, that also transmits to the patient who thinks this person actually is enjoying this and is hopeful about this and, and has that sense of, you know, like advice I always give to people that's they're looking for a, for a counselor and I say, well, what issue, you know, you're working on and and I'll say, ask your prospective counselor if they enjoy working on that. Because if when we enjoy it, we do the extra reading, we take a little extra CE, we have this extra confidence and, and, and we're likely to have that kind of lighthearted play. That's not trivial. That's like, Oh, what a cool opportunity to do this thing that I'm really good at and everybody's going to see it. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Wow. Let's go. So I think you've uncovered there an idea that fits for this section. I think it comes from Daniel Pink in his book drive, but he developed or he uncovered three different attributes of what makes somebody have satisfaction with what their job is. Uh, The key one was purpose, which is what you just talked about. Mm -hmm. It's, am I doing what I am good at? And what do I like doing, et cetera? That all falls under purpose. Am I doing also something I believe is worth doing? Yeah, that's right. The second was mastery. Mm -hmm. Is there room for me to grow in this? Can I learn? And that you alluded to that in when you have something that you feel is purposeful, that you enjoy doing, you are going to learn more about it and you're going to want to get better at it. (laughs) And the third is autonomy. Do I have the ability to make choices for myself or who I'm giving care to around this topic? And I want to take a little segue there because you talked about burnout. Yes. And one of the, I see, I see two types of burnout. I'm, there may be more, but I, the ones I most frequently deal with one is what I call futility burnout. You do not have the autonomy to do it better. You just have to keep doing it in a way that looks stupid and futile to you. Mm. You will burn somebody out who does not have enough autonomy to grow in the doing of it and go, you know, we step two should be step three. And then we could do, you know, and that this would work better. No, I have to do that. It does. It still doesn't work, but I got to go step one, step two, step three, step five doesn't work. Let's okay. Do it again. That will burn somebody out. So the auto- enough autonomy is a great um, antidote to that sort of futility burnout. Mm-hmm. Good. What's the second burnout? The second burnout is a values conflict burnout, which is heading on toward purpose. 
which is I don't believe in the goals of this organization. I don't, or or I have some values that are important to me and either they're not supporting my values, which you can still work on there. You're just not terribly happy about it. Or these this place is in conflict with my values. They want me to do it in a way I believe is wrong or I'm very uncomfortable with, or, you know, my core values, they're asking me to violate that. Um, you know, I, I, I've gone out in corporate America enough as a consultant to realize that with some corporations, not all of them, they're, they're, they're this certain set, subset of corporations that when they're hiring, they're trying to hire someone dishonest enough to lie to the customers, but not to them. That's a really tricky hiring thing. I'd, I'd like to hire someone dishonest who will tell me the truth, but will lie to the customers. Yeah, well, one possibility is, but you, you're definitely going to get burnout. You get you get a crook in there, he'll burn out because he's being required to tell the truth to management. And he, you know, that's not going to work. But if you get an honest person in there, it's like, you want me to do what? Over and over again? You hired me to be honest and I'm being honest with you. Oh, but I'm supposed to lie to the customers. And after a while, you know, that 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 values conflict is just, I just can't work here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's funny, people don't even know that it's a values conflict. They just know they're uneasy. They don't want to go to work. They don't believe in it. Um, that when somebody gets caught for something, they feel an exaggerated amount of, of angst. It's like, oh, yeah, because I'm already telling myself I'm doing something wrong. So if somebody gets caught at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, me too. And I don't know. That's like, no, that's a that's a terrible that's a terrible place to work. Dental teams, well, dental practices have this amazing, amazing thing that you can actually believe in helping your patients and in increasing dental health. There are actually things there that are worthy. And if if that is something that people believe in and really help their, you know, really further their own personal core values then that's a that is a big bulwark against burnout people will do hard things um well the story i frequently tell is uh years ago i got i i got to hang out with a guy who'd been um part of mission control for the apollo program and i said that must have been an exciting job he said no sometimes it was dreadful i mean we'd work you know, 20 hours, sleep four in a cot in the back room of the room and work another 20. And I said, I hated my boss. And, you know, it was hard to roll out first thing in the morning. And, you know, we we're existing on coffee and, you know, this is, te- I mean, it's terrible. It felt bad. And I said, Oh, it sounds like a terrible place to work. He said, no, it was wonderful. We were putting a man on the moon. And when it happened and we saw it on the screen, we turned to each other, shook hands, Pat each other in back. We put a man on the moon. And all those late nights, all those bad bosses, suddenly we're all worth it. You kind of just brought us full circle all the way to the idea of work-life balance being contextual. And there are times where we can make a decision that being out of balance is okay for us. Um when I first started in practice, I followed a guy that said, 
work your butt off for five years, and then you can take it easy for 20. And he was promoting the idea that if you really work hard to build that solid practice in the first five years, you'll be able to coast with that for longer. Now, I don't know if that's true. I didn't do it that way, but that's well, that me, same let idea. Quickly, let me quickly observe that that's not what put a man on the moon. <laughs> that co- the, the coast, you know, working hard for five and then coasting. Sometimes we have this thing that we want to do that's hard. That's the curious thing about human beings. We like doing hard things and we miss it when nothing hard is required of us. And sometimes we burn out through boredom. Yeah. Everything is too freaking easy. Yeah. I guess my point was you could focus on other things at that point. So it's not that your entire life is going to be on cruise control. It's that I can take the pedal off of my practice and I can put the pedal on um, working on my 57 Chevy or running trails or whatever it might be. So it's just a a line item shift Mm -hmm. is the, I think, idea behind it. But ultimately, my advice to people there is make the decision that's best for you and your family based on where you are yes. in life. And yes. there's going to be times where you have to put in more time and effort into something that may not be what you most want to put it into. But mm-hmm. if you want the outcome that sure. you desire, you have to do that for at least a certain amount of time. But there's the trap because that often gets taught separate from the idea of balance. And it is so ingrained in our culture, work hard, work hard, work hard. And so you can pr- impress everyone with how hard you're working at work and that you have to stay late. And you know, it's like, no, wait a minute. This, this has gone past work hard so you can do something. This is where hard work has become some weird end in itself. Yeah. And it's... It, and it's not taking you anywhere. You are not. You're not going to the moon. You're just working hard. Yeah. Just yeah. with this idea that that for some reason I have to beat on myself and everybody will respect me. Uh, <laughs> I keep saying in this thing I read, but <laughs> in this book I read, it's been a little while now. They they said uh, when they ask somebody how they're doing and they say busy. They feel bad for the person because saying I'm busy is almost like you're saying, it's almost like uh, you're trying to say, I'm really working hard. I'm really pushing. I'm, I'm really busy. And that just tells me that you aren't doing it mindfully. One of the first uh, dental groups that I was hanging out with, we went to lunch and we're going down this buffet line and, and the guys didn't know me very well. And they were all like, hey, man, you busy? You know, and I said, oh, God, no, I'm not busy. Yeah. And they're like, what? What is something wrong? I said, no, it would be wrong if I felt I was busy. I'm yeah. not busy. Now I'm working. And I think I'm doing some cool stuff. But busyness is not really what I'm what I'm going for here. So just the idea, are you busy? No. If I was busy, something would be wrong. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> 
professional self-care. What do we do? Two different scenarios. One. No, I'm going to back up. I don't want to cover both of those necessarily. Uh, what I hear a fair amount is the dentist, oftentimes an owner that feels trapped. Yes. Trapped by the practice. Trapped because they're the owner. They they may not they may have realized, quote unquote, too late that this owning a dental practice, maybe even doing dentistry, is not their purpose and passion. They're not too interested, but they now live a life that requires them to be a productive dentist in order to keep going. So or or they're going to have to change their lifestyle. That's right. That's right. It's not like it's not like you can't, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's a choice, but it's a, it's an it's a kind of an awful choice. Yeah. So how how do you recommend people work through that? And I know I I think in that scenario, I would be advising somebody to seek professional guidance. And that would be like a professional counselor of some sort that would help to allow them to work through, to communicate with their family, to communicate with the team, whatever is necessary. But then what else could they do from a non-professional? This is the thing of, yes, they need to work with a counselor like me, but then they also need to work with somebody doing strategic planning like you because <laughs> those are the two pieces of this that make it work mm. you see yeah i can do a lot of personal stuff and and that will help but that you may also discover that you hate being a dentist often though what i notice is what they really mean is i hate being a dentist this way mm-hmm. that's when i talk to them about wow, then why don't you go to dental school? And wasn't that awful? And and they go, no, man, in dental school, there were these, you know, and I really enjoyed that, you know, and then we're, you know, and we're building this. And I thought that was, I'm thinking, oh, oh, okay. So you actually, there are things in dentistry you actually really enjoy. It's that you have set up a practice that either doesn't include those or includes a whole bunch of the stuff you don't like. It's like, oh, so you don't like the way you're doing dentistry because they're also, I mean, you could go teach dentistry. I mean, being a dentist is is not you're not locked in. This is not you're not the garbage collector that comes by and picks up the the recycle every Thursday. I mean, it smells like it sometimes. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, but what I encourage people is like, yeah, there's a lot of change you could do without just ditching the whole thing. Um, and to do that very well, you would need to come up with a vision, a and some goals. I mean, it isn't. A practice is an intricate mechanism. You can't just start throwing things at it. But with a plan, you could you could make some startling changes over a relatively short period of time. So sometimes I say, well, can you work there five more years? Yeah, if I had to. Well, let's say you have to, but you're going to have a plan to change it. And at the end of the five years, it's not going to look like this. Now, would that be worth staying for? See, that's a different deal. Yeah. If it's, it, I, I'm not going to be able to put somebody in counseling and make them love this thing they hate. I can help them change, but the practice has got to change too. Right. We've got to meet up somewhere in the middle. There is something that I notice that dentists tend to do. 
that is almost universally a bad move. They will be unhappy with their practice and they will decide that spending more on these extra machines or a bigger office or whatever is going to help them like it better. They just end up being more trapped because now they have bigger loans as opposed to taking a look at what it, you know, what is my relationship with the practice? Kind of like a, a, you know, a marriage relationship. We're married together. Maybe I should, I should work on the relationship before I buy a lot more stuff. Though I'm sure there are plenty of salesmen for advanced uh, scanning machines and stuff who will promise you that if you get these things, your practice will be transformed overnight. It may, it may increase your, your bottom line. But if you're dissatisfied with your practice, it may not be a bottom line problem. Mm -hmm. It may be I, a relationship problem. I don't like what my practice is bringing me and I, my practice doesn't quite have room for what I'm trying to bring in. Yeah, I think that's fairly common. I, I could see the kind of two opposites there. One is that people overinvest trying to accidentally stumble upon something that's going to make them feel better. Hmm. And the other is that they just completely neglect it. Yes. And yes. it goes the opposite direction. The team sees it. The facility suffers for it. Ultimately, the patients will see it. But that is a sad thing to walk into. Uh, actually, one of the practices I bought um, in Florida in 2000 five was that way. And I got to feel the brunt of the neglect to the equipment <laughs> over time. Well, other, speaking for the team, the other thing that happens in that neglected practice is over time, the people generally, not all the time, but generally the people that are the, the best people who have real excellence in it, in their hearts, so they'll start to leave and go someplace mm. else. Yeah, and the people who will be hired in are the people that are fine with just coasting. Mm -hmm. Well, then they sell it to some young dentist, and he wants it to move it toward excellence. But this whole thing has been constructed to coast, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, I, I what do I have to like fire all these people and buy and get new ones or or buy new? So I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, new equipment. I mean, partly because it's built to coast. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yes, you wanted a Ferrari. But in fact, you got, a, you know, a Ford F-150. And that wasn't what you wanted. <laughs> you know, you wanted to get out there and really do something. Yeah. So, yeah, it the idea that you can turn a practice around, um, you can with a lot of work and time and money. But that doesn't always actually work out. Right. What is this practice? Is this practice built for excellence? Is this a Lamborghini? You know, or or is this practice just they've been on cruise control so long they didn't know where the accelerated pedal is? Yeah, that, that's a great point. I think I've just seen that recently with multiple dentists buying practices that they've run into that issue of wanting to change things and the team being resistant because the team was used to 
the cruise control, as you said, and that makes it even more difficult for that new person coming in to influence where they want. So what we end up seeing is team turnover. Yes. Oh, ma- sometimes massive. You thought yeah. you were buying a going practice, but then, you know, half the team quits. Like right. Enough. Yeah. Well, there is also a phenomenon that, and not pointing any particular fingers, it's just ha- it's what happens in dentistry, is um, the new guy comes in to buy the practice from the retiring doc. But my big question, whenever people ask me to go in and take a look at it, when did he really retire? Hmm. I mean, I know when he's going to leave the practice, but yeah. when did he start retiring? Yeah. <laughs> How many years ago did he start retiring and and the team has suffered and 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 the equipment has suffered and the systems has suffered because it's been on cruise control? And that's fine. But, you know, wait a minute. The, the new guy thinks, oh, this guy's, you know, going to retire in a month. And, you know, it's, well, no, I mean, maybe that would be great. But a lot of times the guy retired five years before. Yeah. Well, I, I can speak from personal experience with that. I, When I stepped into my practice in Illinois, I was gung-ho, wanted to change things. The older dentist was also gung-ho. He wasn't retired early or anything else. Okay, it's just that he had a practice that people were used to his style, not my style. And so it was like me coming in and... Uh, they were not receptive. The majority were not receptive to my approach. And as much as I tried to implement things I'd learned from Bob or other people, mm-hmm. it wasn't working. So I tried a couple times and then went through a phase of of not trying. Yeah. And the not trying was when things started to get worse. And it took a while for me to get the energy Mm-hmm. Phys- physically and emotionally to try again. Yes. But it was that second try that actually was beneficial. It actually was helpful. And I'm sure there were things I did different from the first round that made it more acceptable. My familiarity with the team by that point, sure. they got to see how I worked on patients. And there's a lot of things that were different by then that aided in it being more successful, but it, uh, it was. So if, I've I've but seen it, that roller coaster. It, it's hard to change a practice, particularly if you want a fundamental change. There are two things that you need to be, you need to have in your pocket in order to make a, a substantial change to a practice. One if, is you have to have the trust of the team, and that's just going to take a while. Yeah, they have to trust your dentistry, and they have to trust your leadership, and they have to trust your care of the patients. If they're if they care about those patients they've seen for 20 years more than it looks like you are, they're not gonna trust you. Okay. But if if you if you match it up and if they respect your dentistry and if they understand that you know you want to be there in the practice, they can trust you personally as a person, right? But now the other the other piece, like we were saying before, is that you have to understand the function of all those things you want to change. Why do we do it this way? Not, oh, wait a minute, we could do it much better. Let's just do it this way. No, no, no. Why did they do it the original way? My bet is if you would help, if if you get them to tell you the story of why they do it that way. This idea is known as Chesterton's fence. This heuristic specifically says, do not remove a fence 
until you know why it was put up in the first place. This was inspired by a quote from the writer G.K. Chesterton in his 1929 book, The Thing. And to really summarize it shortly, it says that when you see something and don't understand why it was put there, you need to think through the possibilities of why it was put there before you remove it so that you don't do more harm than good. Check it out. Feel free to uh, Google Chesterton's Fence. You'll discover they may have tried it the way you're trying to change it or something, or that they've tried many different things. And this is the one they settled on because it works in some way with this practice. And if you don't understand that, then they're looking at like, he's just changing stuff and he doesn't really understand why we have this. If you want to change something fundamental like that, you go and you figure out what what's the function, what's the history of how they got here. And can I honor the history yeah. that these are not stupid people that did stupid things they did a better thing each time, and they've come to this by this process of trying to improve things. I need to be able to honor that. And then what I put in place needs to at least function as good or better than this thing. And I don't always mean like, oh, but it'll function better for you know scheduling. I mean function better for does it balance the efforts of the team? Does it seem fair to the team? Is, does it work within the capabilities? All these things that are much less tangible than, yes, but it only takes us this long to schedule. Yeah, but it might have been, it might be this old way because it works for the people who are here in the office. If I don't understand how that works for them, I can't really change it because I've got to work inside that envelope. Another episode in the bag. And that concludes the professional self-care side of things. Looks like we're going to have a week off, and then we will come at you with social self-care. It's likely to be a big one. And again, it'll have a lot of overlap with some of the stuff we've already talked about, but I think also some useful new insights. So until then, have a great couple weeks.